Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 153 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. Today, I am heading to Cheshire to speak to Tim Dobson, who, with his wife, Marnie, runs Chestnut Meats, the UK's largest specialist goat meat business. And it's not often I say that. I'm not sure we've actually ever covered goats on the show. So this is probably, I think this is a first. Um, They founded the company back in 2006. And before that, he was a dairy farmer for 17 years, uh, producing milk for Joseph Healer, who who make cheese. Um, Before we started recording, we're just having a little bit of chit chat about them. Uh, We have, for anyone who's interested, we have covered them over on the the Kite podcast, if you want to head over there, um, talking about their Eat Lean brand. uh, Tim sent me his CV, and uh, I mean to read the list of achievements and accolades on it is is honestly it's quite remarkable. He has done quite a lot, so we'll see how, see how long we go on for today. Um, to name but a few, he was acting chair of the Association of Dairy Farmers in two thousand and one, from two thousand and four to two thousand and ten. He was a council member for the for the RIBDF, Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers. Um, he was runner-up in the Farm Entrepreneur of the Year in 2008. He was a finalist in the British Farming Awards Diversification Innovator category in 2018. And he was also a founder of Tarpoli Farmers Market. So lots of diverse stuff going on there. He's married to Marnie and has three children. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Um, how are you doing? Doing very well. It's uh, nice to be asked and it's nice to be here. This is the first for me. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's a thrill for me. Um, you sold the, your cows in 2008, um, but the goats actually came before then, sort of 2006 time. So there was a bit of crossover. Yes, there was. Um, we, we knew where we were with, with cows. We knew we were a small farm um, that was struggling to grow and we needed to do something that added value to what where we were up to. We were trying trying to um, get niche rather than get big. So on the back of that, we looked at all sorts of different ideas. And there was a farm sale not far from here. And, you know, we went and we went to have a look and see what was going on. And Marnie bought three goats. Okay. And, uh, you know, you think, well, this is a bright idea. We're silaging and the, the lads that are silaging also happened to be milking goats at the time. And they said, well, three is neither here nor there. And we wound up with couple of dozen billy goats to, to rear. Okay. And, you know, bottle rate them, and we've got some Italian stocking here at the time. It was as much milk, milking a, much work feeding these goats as it was milking a herd of cows. <laughs> we did, we reared them. Uh, we started to butcher them. We got a local butcher to do them for us. And we put a sign at the bottom of the drive that said, coat me for sale. And you'd watch people drive past. They'd get about 40 feet past, they'd stop. They'd look at one another as if to say, what the heck is this nuts about? <laughs> They'd turn around and buy. <laughs> and, and, and this this was pre the financial crash. People had got money. Okay. Um, and it worked. And it kind of grew and it kind of grew. Uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know your part of the world, um, what's Cheshire like uh, generally and, and farming-wise? So we're in the parish of Acton. And in the 60s, Acton used to have the biggest concentration of dairy cows in the UK. Everybody here milks cows. That's kind of what this bit bit of the world is and what it does. Um, There aren't so many dairy farms now, but there certainly aren't as many cows. Yeah. There's much milk. Um, There's a big range. There's there's a lot of indoor herds. There's a lot of extensively grazed herds. There's not so many small family farms now. They're all struggling. But, you know, 
you're still in cow country here. Yeah. Nice bit of the world, plenty of rain, plenty of sunshine, plenty of chimney pots, which if you're selling the short life products such as milk, you need. It's quite a prosperous bit of the world because people can commute from here to Birmingham, to Manchester, to Liverpool, um, to Chester. So you, you get that influx of um, the community, um, which has been quite good around here because um, farming community has shrunk somewhat. Tell us about Chestnut Meats and the business model behind it. Um... So in terms of where your goats are being sourced, uh, where they go for slaughter, the butchering process, that kind of thing. So chestnut meats was named after the chestnut tree on the front yard. Nice. Um, nothing complicated, nothing fancy. Um, I have a cousin that makes cheese and she has a federia and an English name. And the English name isn't the best cheese, but it sells far better. Okay. So following advice from her, we, we we named it Chestnut Meats. We originally started with our own herd of goats. After four or five years, we realized that actually I wasn't the best goat farmer and there were better goat farms out there. But we were quite good at, at butchering and running and marketing. Okay. So we developed that side of the business. And, and certainly when Marnie came back from her Nuffield, she stood there and said, as she got off the plane, she said, we need to sell the goats, which we did. Um, and we've got a bunch of about 25 farms that supply into us now. And as we were saying earlier, you know, I used to go down to Essex and I've discovered the countryside. Um, and that's a bit of the job I like, dealing with farmers, buying goats. Yeah. Um, you know, and I will go down to the south coast. I'll go up to the northeast. Yeah. Um, I'll go into the Midlands. Yeah. And it's an absolute privilege to sit there do a deal with farmers, park yourself at the kitchen table and put the world to rights. Yeah, that's that, that's such a good point. Actually, because I've, I've been on the road the last week, and I mean, it's been I've been doing a lot of these, lot of these, and other podcasts as well over Zoom for obvious reasons the last couple of years. And it's so nice to get out onto farms again. But also, you see parts of the countryside that you just wouldn't see otherwise. Oh, if you end up in Herefordshire this time of year with all the apple blossom out, yeah. it's gorgeous. Yeah. No, it's it's just beautiful, and if you you're going down to Dorset, and you you go across across the top of the country through Wiltshire, and it's big open countryside that yeah. just opens out forever. It's just incredible, and sometimes if you're going down there, you'll you'll end up stopping down there. Um, normally, you'd stop on farm, but times have stopped in in holiday lit inns. Um, and you find yourself looking out, you, you look out the coast and there's seven, eight cruise ships parked there that haven't been able to do anything for two years. And it, it's just an opportunity to see different parts of the world, see what goes on. Mid Wales on an early morning, you're driving along and there's barn owls flying along next to you. It's, you know, there's worse jobs. And we, we wound up um, in the middle of lock, lockdown. There would only be me on the road. Um, and we were doing veg boxes as well. So okay. in all honesty, I was out as much as I'd been before. And we had a call from, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here for some meat. Okay. And, and I got a legitimate excuse to go to Wales. <laughs> you know, I was desperate for the police to stop me because I knew full well that I could stand there and say, I'm here, I've got this, I've got a reason for being here. And, um, you know, it, yeah. 
Yeah, have fun and adventures. You, you, you've got to tell me a little bit more about that story. How, how on earth do you end up getting a contract for I'm a Celebrity? There's a, a decent lad who's one of the runners there that okay. goes out and they go looking for um, strange and alternative meets and different things for the, the challenges. We're kind of used to that. Um, you do a you have a hog roast business alongside everything as well, don't you? Yes, we do. Yes, yeah. It's kind of busy at the moment. I can um, imagine. Yeah, <laughs> just a bit. We did we did three over the weekend, and there's there's a big pile of washing up and cleaning up to do. But <laughs> it's night. Look, we started off on Friday. Um, we did a after wedding party for a family that had had the wedding 12 months ago, and they haven't been able to have the party. Saturday, there was a girl whose son had gone to Australia for two years, was just due to come back, and then COVID hit, so he'd been out there four and a half years. And and you didn't need to ask which house it was when you went to try and find it, because there were banners and and, uh, bunting and all sorts, and they were so pleased to have him home. Oh, amazing. Uh, And then... Sunday was um, an 18th birthday party. Okay. And full of farmers. And you find the kids standing there coming, I want choice bits. And, and all the dads are standing there chatting and putting their world to rights and picking at the pig and thoroughly enjoying themselves. <laughs> I like that side of the job. Yeah. I like people. I like, I like doing that sort of thing. Let's talk about dairy uh, because before the goats, um, you were a dairy farmer producing milk for healers. Uh, do you ever miss it? Yes, I do. Um, I enjoyed it. I identify. If ever anybody said, well, what are you? I'm a dairy farmer. You're a dairy farmer. That that was what I am. That's who I am. That's a huge part of my life. That's all I ever wanted to be. Best dairy farmer by any shape of the imagination. But uh, we had a flying herd of cows. We had a herd of licorice all sorts. we, We used to buy in all the replacements. I was never really good enough to be breeding. Um, so we used to sell the calves about three weeks old. For a guy on a small farm who needed to maximise his milk output, and needed to maximise his income, that was the best way of doing it. And it worked, you know. When I came back from college, Dad and I worked together for 10 years. He hit 65, I hit 30. Um, and it's right, well, one of us is going. I don't mind which one of it is. Um, <laughs> He retired. We bought the business off him. We bought the tenancy off him. They went 12 miles away. And we get on better now than we've ever got on, which is brilliant, which is what you need. Right. That's important. Um, he moved far enough away that he was close enough to be handy and far enough that we both had our own lives and our own families. And he'd been gone about a week. I stood there and said, will you milk for me? I've got Jobs coming out of my ears. No. <laughs> and then he rang back minutes later and he said, I'll do it, but I'll only do it once. Oh, and he great. only did do it once. He's happy with that. And I'm happy with that. And it worked. How did um how did the farm change uh or the model change at all between you going back in 1993 um and 2008? So we when when we came back, we four thousand laying hens, uh we uh, okay. 40, 40 sows. And onto your milking cow. That's what you had to do. The sooner I could get rid of the hens, the happier I was. <laughs> um, it, it's the same with farming. Um, 
you know, if one sector is not doing well, the other sector is. Yeah. So the, the business was part of uh, Disa Dairy Farmers Limited, which was uh, a 30 farmer member buying group. And you were a director of that. Um, um, just tell me, a bit, that, more, tell me a bit more about that. Um, I was invited to join that by a guy called Mick Hughes, who you perhaps know better as the guy who invented Spread Avail. We set to, and it was a buying cooperative, so we'd buy fertilizer through there. And we used to have fertilizer loans that would take four or five months to pay for your fertilizer. You'd buy your fuel there. We had a feed, feed deal. As a group, we would work together and we'd benchmark each other. Kind of what you needed when you were a one man band. Um, you needed to brace yourself against um, your colleagues, you know, not so much your neighbours, but you, ne- you needed to know if you were doing the job well or not. And it was, a, it, it was good for me. Yeah. You know, we had about eight or nine years as members of it. Um, and it was one of the best things we did. Very pleased with it. And it's still going strong. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's... It's a it's a, a good business model, and it saved a lot of farms an awful lot of money. Your farm itself, um, you were tenants for many years. You bought the farm in 2017. Um, take me back to that that sort of time, that day. How, how did that feel? Oh, I can't begin to describe it. Um, so we'd started off tenant farms on 90 odd acres um, on a three generation tenancy that mum and dad had taken on the day they got married. So dad was only born across the fields. Mum's not from a family family at all. We took it on in 2000. And as the core business moved away from agriculture, we looked at it and said, you know, we're not entirely comfortable with this. We're feeling a little vulnerable. It's not quite right. It's not just as it's doing. Um, I've no great desire to go out and be investing a lot of money on somebody else's property. Yeah. Um, and we got on well with the landlord. And and I make a point of still doing so. Yeah, yeah. And we still rent some land off him. However, um, we'd watched, particularly the Leverhulme farms around here, stand there and go, I want the farm back and do a deal with the tenant. And we looked at it and went from the other end and said, look, there's a value in this tenancy. If we surrender it, can we buy this? Okay. And, and the, the site had always been, we'd, we'd a set of big Georgian farmhouse and a set of modern farm buildings that were 400 yards apart. And we'd always cursed having two different sites. Whatever okay. you wanted, you were at the wrong site. And we looked at it and said, right, well, we'd like to buy the dairy units. And about that time, permission queue came up and you could convert an existing farm building into a house. Okay. So we did the deal and said, right. look, if we can get planning permission, let's, let's fix the price, let's organise the deal. Um, and it took about four years to persuade him to get more. Wow, okay. We put him for planning permission, we get it immediately, and then it's, oh, heck, what have we done? <laughs> got to do it now. What have we done? So we then stand there and we've got two years in the farmhouse while we get sorted. Having got permission from the house, we then go out and get planning permission to put the butchery in right. and build that first because that's the thing that generates the money. Yeah. Um, and there'd been a group of guys down in Kent who did modular buildings. Okay. And I'd had their advert that's on the wall for the last 
five years and yep. email. Yeah. And he comes and looks and says, you don't want to do this, you want to do that. And you don't <laughs> come the price, the cost of the builder. And it turned up on one morning on a 44-foot Arctic lorry driven by a, out from Eastern Europe. Okay. And, and it was too big to take, get into the yard. <laughs> it was it over the hedge. <laughs> put it in the field. Um, and then, and some of these sheets were, you know, everything was done in multiples of six metres and some 12 metre sheets. Yep. So, you know, this was seven o'clock in the morning. I had to knock one of the neighbours out of his milking parlour and say, come on, I need your load all now. <laughs> and precision unloading this wagon with two load alls. So we get that. We then have to go get a trailer and get it into the shed that we're in now. Yep. Um, and we stood there and said, look, if we provide the beer and the food, <laughs> will you provide the labour family? I think that's, so that's a pretty August good deal. Bank, August bank holiday weekend. <laughs> um, admittedly, first man on the yard was my father. And we'd have these sheets and you'd, you'd take the plastic off. It was like a big Lego kit in three days. Family and friends have managed to build this. Um, it took a lot more doing to do everything, but the mechanics of it were, were good fun. And then we opened up in 2018, had a good year, managed to kid the bank on to lend us the money to build the house. Scariest, hardest <laughs> bit we've ever done. Yeah, I was going to um, say, I mean, what, I mean, what was that like as a project? Um, you want to do what? <laughs> Your business is what? And you expect me to lend you money to build the house on what planning permission? And how does it work? You must be mad. Go on, bugger off. <laughs> and, and I don't, I think we've been rejected by pretty much every bank in the UK. <laughs> and we then had our, our bank manager who knew about the project all along, didn't manage to do it at all. We rang up the, the boss of HSBC Agriculture and told him what we thought about him one day. <laughs> and um, oh, look, he, he sent a commercial bank manager over and who had no idea of agriculture, no idea what was going on, but got us the money. Wow. Um, and he stood there and he said, if you jump through these hoops, I will lend you the money. And we did. And, and he did. And, and he came and, you know, he was part of the build and climb up on the roof and have a look at an inspection. Wow. And when he'd done 18 months standing in for an agricultural bank manager, he breathed a massive sigh of relief and went back to the <laughs> I bet he did. <laughs> you blame the poor lad. Um, and, and we didn't get it on the first hit, but we got it on the second hit. I think I aged 10 years in 12 months. Building it was quite easy because um, what we got was permission queue which means that you can take an existing agricultural building and convert it into a dwelling. Right. And they'd had one or two had tried it around here and had failed and gone to appeal. Um, and when we came into the, the area, the, the local councils had stood there and said, do you know what? Um, we can't find a reason to refuse this. So that had worked. Our architect, I'd literally, he goes past here to work every day. I'd flagged him down. It was pretty much designed on the back of a pack packet. Um, you know, this had been through redesign and design before we put it on paper. And it said, here you go, make this better. Um, 
and he did a very, very good design and access statement. And I believe to that day, this day, that that was the thing that got us okay. built. We had a group of scouts build the house, who were brilliant. I'd recommend them to anybody. Um, and then COVID hit. Let's go back a few years. Um, tell me about your life growing up, and, and I'm interested in uh, whether you're one of you, whether you were one of these kids who always wanted to go into farming or the opposite. Desperate to farm. Um, any excuse to be with dad now for farming and doing. Um, any excuse to go to the auction with him. And I was there and I was doing. Um, always wanted to be a part of it. Um, and I had a brother who was the exact opposite. Um, who stood there and said, it's not big enough for the both of us. Tim's desperate to do it. Um, I'd avoided it like the plague. And um, so, yeah. Des- desperate to farm. Um, all, all I ever wanted to do was come back here and farm. So before you went back to the farm, in 88, um, you went to Harper um, to do an HND in agriculture, during which you did a placement on a farm in Worcester. Um, tell me about the placement, your time at Harper, and, and how that set you up for going back home. Harper's been very good to me. It's opened a lot of doors. Um, and looking back, it was a brilliant thing. But I never desperately enjoyed the time there. But I thoroughly enjoyed placement. And I worked for a guy called Jim Appleby in the Vale of Evesham. Lots of cows, lots of arable. His father had come out of the Camel Corps with nothing after the Second World War. And when I went to work for him, he was farming a thousand acres um, and making a good job of it. It's a good setup, a nice family. And I learned an awful lot. We were up by Long Larkin Prison. So we had land near the prison to, to go and cart bales off and do. And, you know, some of the lads would stand there and say, well, you're a miserable bucket, Tim. You never are <laughs> going fast. And I'm thinking, I'm coming down the hill, having lived on Nuffields and 50 horsepower tractors, driving this big 77 Ford and thinking I'm God's gift dragon coach. <laughs> Knock this thing out of gear. Couldn't get it in gear. I'm heading for the prison gates of the rate and knots, hanging no. on to the tractor for dear life. <laughs> And they're going, why aren't you waving? Thinking, <laughs> oh, you're not allowed to oh, it was terrifying. Uh. <laughs> oh. um, and, you know, Stratford on the Avon Young Farmers, um, the nicest bunch you could hope to meet. And um, I got to see a different bit of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, very happy down there. Yeah. And um, probably one of the best things I've done. And when you come back to look at Harper, um, Wynne Jones was there when I was there. Okay. And you can go for 10 years and not see him, and he'll walk around the corner and go, hello, Tim, how's Marnie? Grace must be at university by now. And a real wow. super superman. You know, Harper, Harper looking back has been very good to me. But I was a very young, naive student there. Uh, let's talk about Nuffields, uh, because both you and, and Marnie have done Nuffields. Um, you did yours in 1997, um, which was on cubicle management of dairy cattle. So, yeah, I mean, what's so, what, what's life like as a Nuffield um, after your scholarship? Because I mean, it's a great network of people in ag, isn't it? But but tell, so tell me about the scholarship. But also tell about um, life after it as well. I didn't know a great deal about Nuffield at all, um, and I knew that Jim had done it, and I knew I needed a challenge. 
you know, I've been looking for something like that. So I applied. And at the time, we just put a new shed up and we were just organising cubicle housing and doing And it was a topic that, you know, I got the planning permission, I designed the shed and built the shed. It fascinated me. I think we'd been to every farm walk known to man, picking ideas and looking and doing. So we did this. I applied for the Nuffield. Um, they had a practice interview, and Alan Griffiths did this, the poultry farmer from Shropshire. And we stood there and looking and talking. And the first question is, you know, we award you the Nuffield. Uh, you go off, you, you have a weekend off in New York. You go up the Empire State Building and you get stuck in the lift. Who would you like to be stuck with? Great. And I'm standing there with my jaw hanging. And what a damn silly question. <laughs> and not a clue. Yeah. Um, go home and we sit there around the kitchen table, my brother and I, and we discuss it. We have a good yeah. two hour discussion on it. And I've never done interviews. And my uncle was the vicar. And he offered to do a practice interview. Uh, okay. with I was going to say, a great person to do it with, I reckon. Ah, so here's me in Overton. And we've got my uncle and the parish worthies leaning out of the bedroom window thinking, is he sweating in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when they decided I was in a big enough tears, they wheeled me in and gave me an interview and scared the living world out of me. <laughs> and, and at which point I then went down to London for the interview. And a friend of mine was getting married and his sister was down there and um, stopped there, stopped the night down in London. And I had a high old time and stopped with Suzanne and had an absolute blast. Walked into the interview, spent half an hour talking to the receptionist, was very relaxed. Twelve people in the interview. The first question was, who would you like to be stuck in the lift with? <laughs> Funny that. Elvis. They started laughing. I started laughing. <laughs> and I got, the, I got the scholarship within the first two minutes, I Fantastic. swear. Yeah. Andy Dyke followed me in for the interview. Um, he reported later, all he did was 20 minutes worth of laughter. <laughs> and I knew he'd got it. Yeah. I think I was the first person in Cheshire to get in that field. Oh, really? I was okay. quite just about. Well, we then went off and went to Eastern Europe, travelled out to the Czech Republic to look at farms, um, to look at options. Back Czech, Slovak, a bit of East Germany. I wound up on a farm in Czech Republic. And the girl whose farm it was had been kicked off by the, the Nazis. She'd got the farm back. She'd lost it again to the Soviets wow. when they came back in. Um, she'd got it back in the Velvet Revolution. She didn't want it. No, she wanted it, but her son didn't want it, but her grandson did. Okay. But she was farming, farming this. And she'd got a herd of about, about 100 Holstein Frisians inside all year round. I mean, you'd have been, anybody would have been proud of these. They were a super, super herd of cattle. And two days later, she rings up and she says, um, my husband's just retired as the director of a brewery. Do you fancy a day out with him? <laughs> and Nuffield had said to me, if all you do is study cows, we've wasted the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get the chance, don't, or, don't over-organise yourselves. Yeah. You know, put three or four appointments in a week. And, and see how it goes. Yeah. And we start off and we go. And his mate, his mate, it was the cellar master. So he says, come on, we'll go down there. And they've eight miles of cellars. And most of it's in stainless steel, except outside this guy's office where there's 
three 3,000 litre oak barrels. And there was a 16 year old lad translating for me. And he and I both thought we'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and every, every so often, one of us would go out with a copper jug and, and fill these things up. We were doing very well. And um, they then stand there and say, Look, there's, there's an Englishman here today. Do you fancy meeting him? You know, don't meet anybody. Yeah. And um, it was the Queen's cousin, the, photog- the photographer. <laughs> And I'm stood there and he's going down the line and being introduced. And um, good afternoon, sir. What are you doing here? I'm studying dairy <laughs> And it was just magical. We then come back and I go off to, um, where did we start off? Wisconsin. And it was all big farms. You know, different world entirely. Um, and from there... I had the opportunity to go to Canada. And Wisconsin, you stop in the hotel and you turn up on the Friday night and they say, right, we'll see you Monday morning, sort yourself out for the weekend. Off you go and do. Um, and I rang Nuffield, Canada up and said, well, where do you suggest? And the boss wasn't there, but his brother answered the phone, who was also in Nuffield, and said, right, you're stopping with us. Okay. And um, I did. And they've been here and my family have been there. And Howard and Olive are two of the most wonderful people I know. Um, and I got to see all sorts of different farms around Ontario. Fantastic. Um, and then the final visit was Arizona. And, you know, I'd have gone there immediately. It was, it was wonderful. Um, and if you were lucky, you'd have a farm, you'd sell it. As Phoenix grew, you'd sell the land for building and you'd move further out. And if you were lucky, you could do that twice in a lifetime. Okay. Um, different attitude. They were milking cows 23 hours a day after 24. Wow. Um, I was work, working with United Dairymen of Arizona. And they kind of got the measure of me, but they didn't really know who I was or what I'd got. And they said, well, what is this? And I got back to Stephen Bullock. He was the director of Nuffield at the time. And said, would you send me something? And he'd faxed out a history of Nuffield. Well, I got into the, the office at eight and everybody else was in at six in the morning. And they clearly read this and, and they described it as the best written piece of English grammar they'd come across. Huh. And all of a sudden, doors opened. Yeah. And all of a sudden, life got an awful lot easier and I got to see a lot more. And we came back, we presented at Durham the, the following autumn and as I came off the stage, I was offered two jobs. And wow. having never been offered a job before in my life, that was quite a moment. And, and at that point, you realised, actually, I can go out and do this, and we can do it. And that was a, as big a change as any as I've had in my career. Blimey. Um, I mean, I've, I, I've, and, heard, I've heard quite a few Nuffield stories, but honestly, that there are a few more than this that if, if anyone listening is inspired to do one, this is definitely one of those. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I'd worked on dairy farms, I'd worked in the UK, I'd sat my final exam at Harper in the morning and I'd looked in the afternoon. Nuffield was the best thing that ever happened to me. And then when we'd finished, they stood there and said, you're not an ex-scholar, you're a scholar, your scholarship hasn't even started till today. I was very lucky, I got a Trahane scholarship. And Trahane used to do an, an annual dinner down at Simpsons in the Strand. And it was free for scholars. And there used to be 
seven of eight of us would get on the train at crew station. You get down there, and there's a guy called Richard, 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 Richard Holland, who used to be involved with Dartington cattle breeders, who's led generations of dairy farmers astray around London and showed them all the spots and all the night highlights. <laughs> and uh, you know, there was a stage when you were doing this, you'd go to the pub in London more than you'd go to the pub at home. And you got to know London and you got to know the industry. And particularly at that point, all the industry leaders would go along to it. You'd be, you'd be mixing with the, the movers and shakers of the industry. And, and particularly when we were trying to organise the milk protests and the likes, that was a really good place to be. Um, so, you know, Nuffield's been very kind to me. Trahane's been brilliant. You just wish he had time to do a bit more now. Yeah. I mean, without, without thinking of it too deeply, do you mean, how do you think it actually impacted on you personally as well? Um, in terms of your own personal growth? Massively. I'm very young, very naive until then. And when I first got my Nuffield interview, you know, Trahane stood there and said, come down, let's, you know, we come to the Farmers Club, come and have a bite to eat. Um, We want to tell you what you've got and where you're up to. Um, On the Saturday, I went out with Marnie for our first date. Um, and I said, look, I'm going to London on Tuesday. Nine o'clock Monday morning, she said, um, hang up, she said, I've altered the schedule. I'll meet you in Leicester Square at three o'clock. Well, I'd never heard of Leicester Square, and I'm standing there. Thinking, How on earth am I going to find it here? And I had a cup of tea with my cousin down there that morning, who cursed me uphill and down Dale for not telling her that I was going to meet a girl in London. <laughs> Um, and so all through this Nuffield journey, Marnie was a part of it. Yeah. So we were courting then. Um, we got married while I was doing a scholarship. And it, it changed me. Yeah. Um, made me a better person. Um, gave me a perspective that I'd not had around here. I thought everybody milked cows. And I found that everybody didn't milk cows. It was, it was quite different. An adventure. Great story. Thank you for telling us. Um, let's let's return back to your business. Um, challenges, opportunities moving forward, where you are at the moment, where you're going. Uh, what's the future look like for Chestnut? The best thing we do is sell meat online. Um, we've customers down in the southwest, London, in Scotland. Um, that's the best, best thing we do. Um, same as everybody else, costs are rising. Finding staff is a challenge, you know, if we get them, we can keep them. But it's just, you know, we're quite a rural location. They've got to be able to drive here. So building a team is the most important thing we can do. Um, I can butcher, I'm not bad, but you'd never employ me as a butcher. It's my job to keep those guys busy, yeah. to keep running in front of them, to keep stock in front of them, to keep the orders coming in. There's a lot of variety. Marnie and I run it together. She tells everybody what to do and, and we all do it. And, you know, that, that works. She runs the butchery side of it, I run the farming side of it. Okay. Um, and then we both go out and help one another with what we do. So challenges are to grow it. Um, we had a, a really good COVID. If we can keep that level of growth up, I'd be delighted. I would say we've had a far better year in, this year than we did pre-COVID. We're not quite at the COVID levels at the moment. 
the challenge is to keep to keep that growth going. Oh my goodness, there are so there are so many things I want to ask you about, but I, I'm conscious of time, so we will start wrapping this up. Um, we're going to end with the two questions that I always ask any everyone at the end of the show. The first is, if you have a message for the public, any message, what would it be? Farmers, good guys, we're good at what we do. We like what we're doing. Come and have a look at us. Come and see what we're doing, um, and come and buy. Because if you don't buy us, we haven't got a business, mm. and it's got to be right for you. And there's a lot of good people doing a lot of hard work to make sure that the products are right. Don't buy British because it's got a flag on it. Buy it because it's a quality product. And finally, a message for your fellow farmers. Don't be afraid of taking a chance. Go out there and do something different. Go and enjoy it. We're only here once. Um, Go and have an adventure. I think that's a great message to leave it on. Um, We will leave it there. Um, But... Oh, thank you so much, Tim, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And like I say, uh, my, my my list of questions is, is still going on. So I'm, I, I may have to ask you back and for, for a future episode, but it's been brilliant hearing your story, especially about your Nuffield trips and, and how that shaped you as a person. Um, I hope that's inspired lots of people. Uh, I know it's inspired me and uh, good luck for everything moving forward because I'm, I'm sure that you still have lots of things ahead of you. There's a lot going on here. Thank you very much. It's an absolute privilege to be asked to join you. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Please do subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. Uh, If you haven't already, um, that will mean that you won't miss any future episodes. And if you're feeling really generous, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review. Um, That also helps in pushing the podcast up the podcast list. So more people, more farmers can hear about it. Um, Or you can always give it a plug on social media. Next time, um, I will be heading to Shropshire uh, to speak to dairy farmer Andy Farrow. Um, So I hope you can join me for that. I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers, and I hope you have a great week ahead.